Hello and welcome to the Global Month Ahead. My name is Isabel Trick and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. This is the fourth installment of our new podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. And what we do here is that at the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across Global Council to delve deeper into interesting events and developments that are taking place in the month ahead. You can broadly expect a focus on issues with geopolitical and economic importance, and we will make sure that you know more than your friends and colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For today's edition, we've got three topics again. The newly announced China-Arab Summit, the US-Africa Leader Summit, and then the last set of major central bank meetings for the year. First up, we have the China-Arab Summit, which is set to be hosted relatively spontaneously by Saudi Arabia to take advantage of a visit by China's President Xi Jinping. Xi is set to arrive in Saudi Arabia on December the 7th, and the summit is currently set to take place on December the 9th. To talk about this, I have my colleague Ahmed Halal with me. Ahmed is a director at GC, and he is one of our top specialists on Middle Eastern politics. Ahmed, um, I really don't think there could be a much more interesting time for Saudi Arabia to host something like this. So what is your take on this news and how significant do you think this is, especially given how little she has been traveling since the pandemic? Yes, thanks, Isabel. I mean, it's highly significant. As you said, she doesn't hasn't traveled overseas at all, at all really, since the pandemic started. A few exceptions here and there regionally, but uh, this will be his first diplomatic push, really, uh, further further ashore. And it's, it's Saudi Arabia and, and the crown prince is the day-to-day ruler of, of the kingdom, uh, really announcing his return to the global stage. There was his reintroduction in the Qatar World Cup, sitting beside the host uh, nation, the leader of Qatar, you know, one of, one of three Arab leaders that were sitting there in, in, in the opening ceremony, uh, re-announcing himself on the international t- stage. But this is another level altogether because of the context, because of the regional context that we're facing with the U.S. and Saudi relations at near historic lows, um, and at a time when the U.S. has identified China as its uh, greatest strategic competitor for MBS, as he's widely known, to be hosting Xi at this time is extremely significant. So you already mentioned that there is kind of a historic low in Saudi-U.S. relations. Can you tell us a bit more about that kind of, because traditionally we know the U.S. as the security guarantor in the Gulf and one of the traditional allies of countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE. Um, What has changed and what is behind that sort of pivot to Asia? The immediate uh, trigger was obviously the election of Joe Biden to the White House. He came into office uh, pledging that he would reassess relations with, with Saudi. This is mainly over the, the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in, in 2018 and uh, Saudi's prosecution of a war in uh, Yemen, leading a coalition against the uh, Iran-backed Houthi rebels in uh, in Yemen. And, you know, more recently, what has exacerbated the situation between the two historical allies is uh, Saudi's decision to cut oil production in collaboration with Russia as part of the OPEC plus plus alliance to uh, you know which which is obviously uh, added added uh, to the inflationary pressures that uh, the global economy is facing and has forced the US to release more of its strategic stockpile of you know from its petroleum reserve and happened at a time when you know you, you know Joe Biden's democrats were uh, facing, facing a potentially uh, tough uh, midterm midterm season it was seen really as a as a uh, uh, as a direct challenge to to Joe Biden um, and his administration, so obviously that that hasn't helped the climate at all. 
we've seen the Saudi Arabia and its allies and its Gulf peers have have a have a perception of the U.S. withdrawing um, from from the region, uh, reducing its security commitment as they see it towards the region. That's why this this visit by by Xi. Uh, is, is highly significant. It, it shows the Saudis um, looking east, pivoting to Asia more. And let's not forget, of course, that the top buyer of, of Saudi export, the top destination for Saudi exports is China. Uh, and it's mainly obviously crude oil. Yeah, I think your last point is very interesting because it does seem like a sort of doubling down by the Gulf states on that refusal to pick sides kind of as the US would like them, both in the US's kind of competition with China, but also, of course, um, vis-a-vis Russia. So what do you expect to be on the agenda of the summit aside from from oil? Or do you think that is really going to be dominating the, the summit agenda? So pr- primarily security and trade for for all Gulf states, uh, China almost all uh, is is the top destination of exports. As I said, I mean, if you look at Oman, for instance, eighty six percent of Oman's oil exports go to China. UAE is in a similar situation, uh, top ex- top oil export exporter to China. So the, 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 it's a, it's a very important economic bilateral relationship, GCC and and, and China. Expanding those trade ties, there's also be there, there will also be a big security component to this. There's a greater reliance because the U.S. has been reassessing arms exports also to the, its key military allies, U.S., uh, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. For instance, they have been dragging their feet in authorizing the sale of advanced drones, unmanned uh, drones, uh, uh, combat drones. Uh, China has stepped in. To, to, to provide this technology. And uh, so security will be a, an important, and there's also some, some reports of Saudi and, the, and China developing a missile, uh, missile systems together in collaboration with each other. So the security element will also be high on the agenda. But really for Saudi Arabia and, and, and MBS, this is an opportunity to, to, to uh, reemerge as a convener you know, a, a leader on the global stage, having really been isolated and shunned uh, by the incident of, of the killing of Khashoggi. I'd, I'd say it, it'll be dominated by the two issues of trade and security um, and, and of course, energy with China's reliance on hydrocarbons from the Gulf. Absolutely. So both kind of a very symbolically important summit in terms of MBS's role on the world stage, his visibility as a, as a host and convener, as well as trade and security. And of course, speaking about security kind of brings me quite neatly to another issue I want to talk to you about. I'm not sure if it's going to be on the agenda per se, but I guess you can't really have Gulf countries get together in any way without talking about Iran. So we've got the efforts to revive the kind of 2015 Iran nuclear deal really faltering. How do you see that? What do you think are the implications there for Gulf security, especially in the context that you've already mentioned of the U.S. being seen as withdrawing some of these security guarantees that we've been used to? Sure. So I'll take the the second part of your question first and actually maybe uh, try and debunk this notion that, this, that the U.S. is retreating from its security commitment. That that perception is there, but uh, in fact, you know, the facts on the ground say otherwise. I mean, the U.S. has, you know, scrambled its jets in, in the region this month, only this month, when there were reports, intelligence reports, that Iran was planning uh, an attack uh, on, on the shipping lanes of the Persian Gulf and targeting uh, Saudi assets. And uh, that was a real show of deterrence and uh, has been developing, um, you know, this this highly advanced surveillance system, maritime surveillance system called Digital Ocean, with its partners in the Gulf. And this is not this is not widely known to the local public, but is 
it's a system that's being pioneered uh, in the waters of the Persian Gulf and will be actually rolled out in other sensitive uh, uh, waterways in the future, but the fact that it's being rolled out initially and pioneered in, in the Persian Gulf is a, sta- is a statement to the, to the U.S.'s uh, commitment to the security of Saudi and its and its uh, Gulf allies. And the National Security Council has openly said we will not countenance any uh, threat to our interests in the region and to our and to the security of our partners um, in the Gulf. So I really don't I don't I don't accept this. Uh, 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 Picture of the U.S. retreating and, and you know and looking exclusively at the Pacific and China, I think they're very much there's there's very much no alternative or substitute to the U.S. security umbrella in uh, in the region. Oh, thanks very much, uh, very much for that, Ahmed. It's uh, that's exactly why we bring on the experts because I think if you say this is not particularly well known to the populations of of the countries concerned, I think this is going to be something really our listeners are going to find um, fascinating. Um, yeah, I'll just give you um, a couple more moments to answer the, the last part of my questions. What are we thinking about the Iran nuclear deal and the general question of um, Gulf security in the context of a faltering deal? Iran will continue then to retaliate, and Israel also has has this existential threat. Sees Iran Iran, Iran nuclear program as an existential threat, and is conducting a shadow war really with Iran in that region, uh, targeting each other's assets. So, in general, this will be a, a serious security threat. Uh, this deal falling apart for the region as a whole, and will be a deterrent for, of course, investment and a net negative for the investment climate. For our second segment, we have the U.S.-Africa Leader Summit. And that is actually a topic that I will be following very closely myself because I lead our sub-Saharan Africa work here at Global Council. But because I can't really interview myself, I have decided to invite my colleague, Sonia Vasconcelos, back. She's from our D.C. office and she's here to join me today. Hi, Sonia. Great to have you back. Hi, Isabel. Thanks for having me. So yes, here in Washington, preparations are already underway for the summit. That's going to be a three-day event starting on December 13th. We're expecting heads of state from across Africa, industry leaders, youth leaders, and diaspora organizations. Now, this is only the second summit of its kind hosted by the U.S., and the last one was in 2014, hosted by then-President Obama. Why do you think Joe Biden has chosen now to host another meeting? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, But I think the background is quite clear. Um, These summits are called Africa Plus One summits, and they've actually become really popular. Some of them have been going for a really long time. There's an annual summit between France and Africa that's been going for nearly 50 years. And lots of other countries are organizing these regular summits. You've got Japan, China, the EU organizing these summits with African countries. And more recently, Turkey has their own summit, India and Russia. China had a summit um, around the same time last year. The EU had one in February, and Russia was actually planning on hosting a summit uh, this winter, but they've recently announced to postpone that. And I don't think we have to uh, go into why it might not be the best time for Russia to try and host an international summit right now. So in a way, I would say it's almost unusual that there have been so few head of state level summits between the US and Africa, given that Really, for many African countries, the U.S. Um, has been and in really many cases still is a really major trading partner, really significant provider of aid and also a security partner. So really, I would say there's been a sense that the U.S. needs to make up for missed times. 
And in addition to that, make up for the Trump administration because Africa-US relations really hit a bit of a low point during Trump who used some really derogative language about the continent. So yeah, I would say a mixture of making up for lost time and making amends. And part of that is the release of the new Sub-Saharan Africa strategy by the White House in August. And that strategy really didn't, um, I would say, require much reading between the lines for why the Biden administration really thinks that now is the time to revitalize the relationship. The strategy really very actively pointed to the need of countering Boris Chinese and Russian influence in Africa. And in addition, the strategy also highlighted that Africa was really going to play a much more critical role essentially in the kind of future of the world, because America and many other countries have come to the realization that the African continent is home to many of the critical raw materials that are going to power the world's low carbon energy transitions. And we're talking about um, materials like cobalt, for instance, of which the, the DRC is the world's largest producer. Um, yeah, so to keep it simple, a recognition that African leaders are really spoiled for choice these days for who they want to work with. And essentially, no country, not even the US, can rest on their laurels and remain and expect to remain the partner of choice without putting in the effort. Interesting. So you think this event has kind of been driven in part by other meetings happening around the world and the US not really wanting to miss, miss, miss out on, on this. And what do we know about who will be attending. Under Obama, invitations went to 50 African nations and 37 heads of state attended in person. Yes, so I think exactly they're following the same strategy as Obama did at the time. So essentially, they're sending invitations to every country on the continent, unless it's not in good standing with the African Union. So that means we have um, countries like Burkina Faso, Guinea, Mali and Sudan, which are currently suspended from the African Union because of the coups that took place there. They're not invited. And you also don't get an invitation if you don't have diplomatic relations with the US, and that covers um, Eritrea as well as Western Sahara. So this time around, that means invitations went to 49 countries in total. Um, actually, just as a quick sidebar, I think it is a useful decision that the um, US administration made the decision to take that really broad continental view, which is very much how the African Union views itself and which is reflected in um, things like the African continental free trade area. So really inviting the whole continent rather than splitting it into North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa like the strategy, uh, the US strategy did earlier. Um, where are we with RSVPs? I think we're currently um, looking at about 45 RSVPs is the latest that I've heard. Doesn't necessarily mean they're all going to be heads of state. Some may not choose to attend in person and may send um, other delegations. Um, for instance, I'd be really surprised if um, Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, is going to attend in person, um, primarily because he's got a really important party leadership contest, um, contest happening at the same time. But yes, um, 49 invitations have gone out. And in fact, that is probably slightly more than some people would have hoped. And specifically, there had been hopes from human rights organizations, civil society organizations, that the White House might be a bit more selective and maybe not invite some African leaders who have, um, say, less than stellar democratic uh, credentials, to put it mildly. Um, for instance, they did that last year when they ho um, hosted a so-called Summit of Democracies, which only had 17 African countries invited at the time. And maybe to single out one person here, um, one invitation that has garnered particular attention has been that of Museveni, who has been ruling Uganda since 1986. And he has become repressive and more and more repressive with each election cycle. And election here is really in, in quote marks. 
But yeah, I think what the US is facing here is a clash between um, aspirations and the realities of our political world. It's really easy to talk about a values-based foreign policy. But if you look at an example like Uganda, they are an important um, partner in fighting jihadism in Somalia. Museveni is really open to working closely with Russia. So you can understand that rationale for engaging and for taking the view that it's better to have essentially all parties at the table rather than only engaging with those who already share your values. But I think on the other hand, it's easily understandable why some parties, civil society organizations and people in the countries might be upset because you could rightly say that inviting repressive leaders, autocrats to something as prestigious might legitimize them more and really gives them kind of more visibility on a global stage. So it's interesting that these invitations really provide us with a view into how the U.S. prioritizes its partners in Africa. So what do we know about what is on the agenda? Yeah, like you mentioned, it's a um, three-day summit. The first day is going to be composed of a series of forums. They're going to have topics like climate, health, security, um, governance. There's going to be a young leaders forum. And then on the second day, that's going to be the business day. We've got the U.S. Africa business. Forum, which really is going to be about opportunities for African and US businesses and trade. And then the third day is like the big day of the summit. It's the leaders day. And here, I think we're expecting a focus broadly what the White House has briefed on democracy, human rights and governance. And as we've just said earlier, with the invitation list being what it is, that's going to be interesting. But what is even more interesting, I think, is maybe what is not officially on the agenda, but is a topic that I would definitely expect to be discussed, maybe more on the sidelines or in potential bilaterals bilaterals that might take place alongside the summit. And that is, I think, the question of Russia and the question of Africa's relationship with Moscow. For background, I think it's important to understand that essentially the voting pattern of um, African countries during different UN resolutions condemning Russia really, really shocked some Western countries, um, the US included, for instance, in March, there was a vote about condemning the use of force um, by Russia in Ukraine, and 26 African countries didn't vote or abstained in that resolution. And despite some fairly intense lobbying by the US since then, there actually hasn't been a major change of mind in these countries. Um, That's that's due to different reasons, partially a preference for non-alignment, partially complex ties with Russia by many countries, but also because African countries are really quite pragmatic in who they want to work with and what they see as a broadly more kind of multipolar world. So what I think we might see is some US officials that might try to sway some African leaders to be more open in condemning Russia. But I think that's a really difficult balancing act because very few African leaders are going to be enjoying being lectured to. And that's essentially something why they often prefer to work with Moscow or with Beijing, because they don't feel that relationships with these countries come with a lecture. So if African countries um, might be swayed by the US to take a stronger stance, that's really going to take some real diplomatic finesse by US officials and have to be quite careful how they engage on that front. And it has to be quite carefully calibrated if it's going to land correctly and have the desired impact. So it seems like China and Russia seem to be really key to the U.S.'s relationship with Africa. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Overall, a busy three days. How do you think we'll be able to judge the summit? That's probably one of the most important questions. Um, 
I think we could take a simple metric, which is the actual number of heads of state or heads of governments that choose to attend. If we get a similar number to 2014, um, I think you said we had um, 37 heads of state attend, then you could definitely read that as um, a recognition or a confirmation that um, African countries still really value the US as an important partner. But maybe less tangibly, it will be important to see whether this summit really achieves to put some, let's say, some meat on the bones of the US strategy for Sub-Saharan Africa. Because when that came out in August, some of the criticism, um, including mine, really focused on the fact that it was really light on substance, heavy on rhetoric, heavy on promises. But there was little substantive um, weight, kind of little funding commitments, for instance. So I think you could class the summit as a success if we maybe see some interesting new initiatives announced, some interesting new funding, um, especially. And it's all going to be about whether the U.S. is going to be able to substantiate some of its claims that it wants to reset relations with the continent and doesn't just see African countries as an afterthought. But yeah, essentially, the White House says they want this to be defining or redefining moment for U.S. policy in Africa. But for that to happen, I think we need to see concrete outcomes and not just photo ops. Absolutely. Thanks, Isabel. Thank you, Sonia. Last but not least, I am joined by two of my colleagues from the Global Macro team. Thomas Krotowski is a Senior Practice Director and he leads the Global Macro team. And Christina Isak is a Senior Associate in our Brussels office who just joined us from the European Parliament, where she was an Economic and Fiscal Policy Advisor. The two of them have joined me to look ahead at three important central bank meetings. The Federal Reserve in the US, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank all have their last policy meetings of the year on December 14th and 15th. So that will essentially be their last opportunity of 2022 to influence inflation. If economists had their say, I would imagine that inflation might in fact be the word of the year, because it really occupied both journalists, monetary policymakers, and politicians in a way that it hasn't for years or decades. And of course, it has been acutely felt by people around the world, with many contending with really sky-high prices. So this is a topic that is of real, real-world importance to everyone. To kick us off, Christina, I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on what you think is top of mind for central bankers as they head into these meetings, and what do you think we can actually expect from the meetings as they're about to happen? I think uh, the key question in the upcoming meetings is to try to grab the moment when central banks should cool off their policies. So basically, the key question is when they should stop hiking interest rates so as aggressively as they have been doing in the past months. And uh, one of the main points about this is that monetary policy usually has a transmission period, so it does not immediately take effect in the economy. We can't see immediately how it uh, works out. But it's also very difficult for central banks to grab that moment when it's actually happening. We now see a slowing uh, economy, probably in recession over the winter, but we see a stubbornly high inflation. So we now see how actual monetary policy has been taking place. We previously... Um, have seen central banks trying to balance that they don't restrict economic activity too much with increasing interest rates um, to high levels. But communications have been changing on both sides of the Atlantic, hinting to the point that central banks are willing to raise interest rates to levels that would restrict economic activity against recession fears in order to tame inflation. 
the decisions in December will send a very clear signal about what kind of directions different central banks are taking. And I would mention here the Federal Reserve uh, from the US and the European Central Bank from the Eurozone. We can see that uh, the major decision for the Eurozone is whether to, to raise interest rates with 50 basis points or 75 basis points. Um, Fed officials have already signaled that they will increase interest rates further, but they pointed out a 50 basis point raise for November, which already implies that the Federal Reserve will take a slower path. That's very interesting. So we're talking both about a question of timing, how long do you want to raise for, and a question of how much do you want to raise by. And maybe to dig deeper into something you uh, you hinted at is that, of course, these different central banks are dealing with different dynamics at home. Initially, the Fed reacted much faster and the ECB was trying to catch up. And in a way, we might be arguing that the US inflation has peaked. So would you say we can expect the two central banks to continue moving in parallel or might we see a diverging path? I would expect that they, there will be a, probably a divergence between the US and the euro area in terms of where they take their monetary policy, at least in the near term. Um, as I mentioned previously about the Fed, uh, that it's probably taking already a slower path uh, this December, but the eurozone is a bit more complicated. The European Central Bank has to make a monetary policy that is appropriate for 19 different economies. And there is also a, a lot that depends on the interaction between monetary policy and fiscal policy in the euro area. We see uh, significantly diverging inflation rates in the euro area with, for example, 7.1% in France, but 22.5% in Estonia. This, this specifically gives a challenge to the central bank. Another challenge is that both the central bank and the commission have been criticizing European member states for the lack of targeted measures, which fuels inflation further, and it also neutralizes the central bank's efforts to tame inflation. We see European governments uh, ramping up support for their citizens and businesses to shield them from the soaring costs, and their spending has now reached around 700 billion euros. So basically, the European Central Bank must see the peak of inflation before it can consider any slowing down. Uh, we have seen the November inflation data, which has been published today, that it, it pro uh, pro produced a surprising drop to 10% from 10.6% in October. But I doubt that the, the, that one monthly data will be enough for the European Central Bank to change its course. This is specifically important because we have not seen core inflation dropping. Core inflation is inc excluding uh, price increases in food products and energy. And uh, the, um, the European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde has confirmed that she is not sure that inflation has peaked in the euro area, specifically for this reason. And the European Central Bank will monitor underlying dynamics uh, of core inflation. Very interesting. So rather a diverging than a parallel path, because we are looking at these very diverse economies that the European Central Bank all has to 
try and respond to, which is a perfect opportunity for us to bring in Thomas. So it's a, a picture of divergence and possibly no full year recession in, in Europe or the Eurozone. But of course, if we're having a country like Germany that makes up such significant parts of both the European Union, as well as the Euro, um, Eurozone economy facing such significant trouble, we can't be imagining that we're looking at a rosy economic picture going into 2023. I want to ask you one last question, the all-important question of energy that, of course, is particularly impacting on kind of manufacturing-driven, industrial-driven countries like Germany. And of course, we can't talk about um, energy politics right now without talking about geopolitics. So what sort of um, role do you think energy politics is going to play in the year ahead? It's a very important question and a question that also the European Commission uh, has tried to answer, answer in its last uh, report. Obviously, energy is has been a key driver for inflation and as a result also monetary policy action. And then on the on the other hand, uh, of course, uh, has dampened uh, economic activity. Now, in the Commission's uh, own thinking, um, I think the risk of you know Europe losing access to any Russian gas, you know, to remind our listeners so far. Um, Russian gas through Belarus and and uh, Nord Stream has been affected by R Russian shutoffs. We still receive gas uh, through Ukraine, through uh, Turkey, and also um, via you know uh, LNG tankers. Uh, so and actually the latter has uh, increased quite significantly. So there is a sense that um, you know the risk of a further reduction of of gas from Russia uh, will have a severe impact on. On uh, on growth and inflation in 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 the euro area and in the EU, and I think signals from the Russian side that they might uh, continue to limit or further limit actually um, supplies through Ukraine uh, clearly point to to the risk of of losing more Russian uh, supplies. Of course, another risk uh, linked to that is some extent the weather, which we can't fully uh, fully model and influence. Uh, at least it's outside of my my area of expertise, but of course. Two subsequent, uh, you know, cold winters uh, would have severe impact on uh, the European economy. Now, that is perhaps on the supply side um, and demand side to some extent. There's one important other factor, which is China. Uh, Russia has been, um, or Europe has been uh, lucky because we were able to refill our gas storage in part because Russia still delivered gas. And on the other hand, because we could get LNG, uh, in, in in part because China didn't uh, consume, uh, you know, at the same pace LNG as it did in the past, and so um, there is clearly the question: to what extent, you know, reopening in China might uh, tighten the, the global LNG market much more than than we saw this uh, this year, and and as a result, actually, energy prices in Europe uh, will, you know, remain high. Uh, or even you know shortages, if not this winter, but in the coming winter, uh, might be in the cards. And all that means, uh, again, in looking at some of the Commission's thinking, is that if we have uh, a confluence of all of those factors uh, coming together, so you know a, a fall in Russian supply, a lack of available LNG, a cold winter, basically what Europe potentially faces is at least two years of stagnation. Uh, something we have not seen since the eurozone crisis which you know has not only repercussions for for the economic outlook but also for the political fabric 
in Europe. Um, and I think, um, you know, we're only basically in the beginning, perhaps, of uh, to, to, to understand what that might mean for politics and policymaking in, in Europe as well. The last uncertainty, and I don't want to um, spend too much time on this, is of course the oil market. Um, I think um, with uh, the oil price cap on Russian oil coming uh, into force soon, uh, coupled with the oil embargo, uh, now in early December, but then also in uh, in uh, in the first month of next year on, on oil products, uh, you know we might see a Russian reaction to that uh, that uh, is not yet priced into into oil markets. It could uh, again heavily affect um, the energy market in Europe. So that that is certainly another risk. Uh, you know we could go on 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 that for sure. But I think um, from a European perspective, perhaps, or at least the thinking so far has clearly been more on, on the risk from, from gas and, and potential gas shortage. So a highly complicated and complex outlook that depends as much on our ability in Europe to reduce demand as well as it depends on a complicated set of external factors. What will Russia do? How might it react to an oil price cap? How much will gas flows be sustained? What is happening with China? How quickly is China reopening? Unfortunately, this is something we struggle with slightly on this podcast. It's ending on a positive note, but we can always wish for a mild winter and maybe this time not a white Christmas. That's not something we, we usually want. But if we don't have a white Christmas, we might be slightly better able to save some energy. So I'm going to try and leave it on this note. We are at the end of our fourth episode of the Global Month Ahead. We're clearly looking at a very interesting December. A hugely significant summit between China and Arab states in Saudi Arabia, which is set to focus on trade, security, but is also going to provide a really interesting platform for Saudi Arabia's crown prince to rebuild some of his global profile. We have the first US-Africa leader summit in eight years um, in Washington, where the US really will have to try and keep up with other countries that have been much more prolific in organizing these summits and will really need to put some meat on the bones of their new Sub-Saharan Africa strategy. And we have three central bank meetings that will give us some important glimpses into the year ahead. And we have quite a complex and unfortunately not very positive economic outlook for 2023. We'll pause this podcast in January because Global Council is hosting um, our annual conference, but we will be back in your ears in early February. As always, if you or your business or your investments are exposed to any of what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find my contact details and the details of all of our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you very much, to, um, Thomas, Christina, Ahmed and Sonia. Um, it's been a pleasure and thanks to you all for listening. <laughs>